Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. I've been a Buddhist pastor for quite a while, and um, for the bulk of the last 15 years, what I do essentially connect with people on a one-on-one basis, the vast majority of the time in the same room with somebody, or sometimes we're looking, we sit outside, and I check in with them, and through the process of, the beautiful process of deep honest, authentic uh, human connection, where one person listens to another with empathy and interest and uh, so forth, that just the presence of each other can help not only regulate and uh, soothe another person's distress, but together we can collaborate to come up with solutions that would be helpful, just offer tools that I think might be of help. And those tools come about through the direct uh, one-on-one exchange or dyad. So when uh, the pandemic started, uh, I had to change the way I worked with people, uh, no longer connecting mostly in person, but actually having to do the Buddhist pastor work, the interaction, the spiritual counseling that I do uh, using uh, apps like Zoom and uh, FaceTime and uh, Google Hangouts and whatnot. So um, this ch- this change uh, really brought my attention to um, uh, the differences one between direct interpersonal interaction uh, and all of the ways that that meets our really deep emotional needs versus the um, the remote mediated connection that we now have through uh, synchronous video communication. And um, so why is that, why does that even matter? Well, a couple of things. One, a couple of reasons. Uh, if you, if we understand the core needs that um, human beings seek from birth until death to regulate our autonomic nervous system, to limbically co-regulate so that we uh, feel soothed and we establish emotional regulation. We seek basically four qualities in the interactions with others. The most important is the sense of proximity um, from birth. We are um, the attachment structures in the right hemisphere, especially in the orbital frontal and the midbrain, direct us to try to get as close to other people. We are pack animals, and uh, throughout the course of our evolution, security uh, is established through being with others, especially during times of stress. 
So we all seek a physiological presence to feel what's called a secure base. If you know what that is, that's an internal sense of safety, a sense that we can relax and be confident and so forth. The next thing we seek is what's called responsiveness. Responsiveness is we're always, as human beings, constantly sending out bids for attention. That's what human beings do. Our language, our behavior, what we, uh, so much of our creativity and so forth, are seeking the attention of another, to be seen in the eye of another. And what we do when we get attention is we signal our state of being, how we're feeling, how we're doing, through nonverbal cues. Nonverbal cues are less... We're not really talking with other people for the words. We're talking really to have our state of being as actualized by emotions that are expressed largely in the front of the body, because that emotions are generally there. Uh, emotions are primarily forms of communication, telling other people how we're doing. And... In fact, if you look at the evolutionary history of our species, it was only about 30 to 40,000 years ago we developed language, which meant that for the vast bulk of our species, we managed to communicate and develop tribes and interpersonal connections without language. We did it through nonverbal cues, facial expressions, body language. And when we get someone to see those nonverbal cues from our body language, our facial expressions, the tone of our voice, then two things can happen. One is soothing, where another person, if we're in distress, down-regulates our hypervigilance, our anxiety, our, our cortisol secretion. We rest, we feel home, we feel safe. On the other hand, if we're doing well and we're excited, then somebody can offer us appreciation, which is the ability to sustain and encourage our growth, our growth choices, our exploration. So um, the pandemic and social distancing and the way we connect now through video calls has directly affected the first two most fundamental needs, which is one, proximity. We're very often not in any proximal uh, closeness uh, with another human being. We're very often connecting with people from a distance. And two, we're not often seeing the entirety of, our, of their body language, nor are they seeing our body language. Most of you I see, and what you're seeing of me, you're seeing basically from my chest to my head. You're not seeing like, Am I squirming in my seat or not? What are my hands doing right now? You can't even see them. I'd have to lift them up to give you uh, a sense of that. So, so much of the way we communicate and we yearn to be seen and co-regulated and uh, to be understood that is uh, not there. So I found that in my work of connecting with people, I had to understand at a much deeper level um, how to maximize intimacy and connection via this, um, this media that we're now connecting. And that's what the talk is about tonight. 
the most important thing I do and what I really encourage other people to do when they're connecting with friends or with partners, if your partner is not currently with you, um, we all need to have about, uh, according to Robin Dunbar, it's best to have about four or five people who emotionally regulate us, which means people that we can uh, be completely authentic with. We're not trying to get them to like us. We're not trying to manage the way they feel about us. We're just trying to be truly seen and understood and to have somebody who's empathetic and mirroring. And the most important thing we do in these connections, which are the most vital connections for any human being, is to reveal what we conceal. Reveal what we conceal. That sounded catchy when I uh, put it down. Uh, What this means is emphasize disclosing difficult feelings, intrusive and disturbing thoughts, uh, desires or cravings, or secret addictions that we're struggling with. Um, We all develop, by the time we're adults, a whole vocabulary of behaviors and actions that have been vetted by us over the course of our life to get love and to look good to other people. The great psychologist Carl Rogers called this the uh, self-concept, what we want other people to think about us. So, you know, I don't know about you, but I want people to think that I'm confident, that I'm smart, funny, creative, that I'm, you know, compassionate and so forth. And sure, while I have those qualities, but I also have a lot of other qualities. I have anxiety. I can have uh, at times a sense of just being self-interested and and not, you know, at always as compassionate as I could be. I can be uh, pretty self-conscious in social settings, and I can have repetitive thoughts at times that don't go away um, and so forth. And so when I connect with those five people that I consider to be emotionally regulating or those vital people that prov- provide that sense of, of friendship and connection, the first thing I push myself to do is to disclose the parts of myself that I generally don't want other people to know. When we do that, something really so important happens because uh, to the degree that we dis- dis- we fail to disclose or we conceal something about ourselves is to the degree that we feel emotionally isolated. Anything that I'm struggling with internally that I'm not disclosing, that creates a sense that my internal experience is different from everybody else's internal experience. And that creates this feeling of loneliness and isolation. When we talk about emotional isolation, which is one of the most destructive states that a human can be in, it's not necessarily that they're completely uh, alone, that there's nobody else around. You can be emotionally isolated in a crowded setting. I mean, probably not today, but people can be emotionally isolated when they're at a party or a gathering filled with people because they're secretly inside feeling anxious 
or worried or depressed or sad or whatever, but they're not disclosing it to anyone. And they're actually trying to paint on a smile, a sense of looking happy or good. And what that does is it creates the feeling that there's something different, unique and ugly and unlovable. It feeds into what we call core shame, that early wounding that's associated with poor attachments in childhood. So to the degree that we push ourselves to reveal in these, when we connect with friends, anything that we generally wouldn't tell other human beings is to the degree that we heal directly. It's to the degree that we actually wind up with true intimacy in our lives. Failure, again, to disclose creates the really corrosive states of emotional isolation. So um, one way is to literally uh, think during the week about what are the, what, you know, or before we connect with someone, what have I been struggling with? And um, to slowly, as much as possible, taking our time, breathing, and just relate whatever it is that's been causing this sense of, oh, I don't want other people to know that I'm feeling this or, oh, nobody would like me if they knew X about me. That's when we do that, when we disclose, there was these wonderful studies in Bruce Hood's uh, work uh, of how like immediately skin centers so that we relax, muscles stop to clench, the breath gets relaxed, we go into an autonomic state of rest and digest simply through the act of disclosing and having somebody empathetically listen. Now, if we're going to do this, if we're going to push ourselves to disclose, and if we're going to ask other people to disclose to us, it's very important to move on to the second uh, topic, which is the ability to state needs. What is it I require from you? to feel heard, to be safely understood. Many of us who, all of us grow up in, of course, family systems, and in most of our family systems, it's very difficult to state needs. Very often when we did state needs, there were times where we experienced a sense of shaming or uh, rejection. Sometimes we experienced an unresponsiveness. Sometimes the uh, one caregiver would get irritated. Or There's always those uh, times where we state a need for attention. We seek attention and the kind of response we get is not, doesn't make us feel safe and heard. Um, and what we know from the core uh, understanding of what's called negativity bias, for every negative experience in childhood or in later on adult life, it takes five positive experiences to undo the emotional wounds. So if you're in a relationship and you seek the attention of a loved one and they don't respond, then they <laughs> they have to respond positively to your bids five times or else the emotional wound will not be in any way repaired. So we have essentially a five to one negativity bias. 
So it's important in our communication to learn how to state what we need to feel safe when we talk or share. And what that means is if you notice that somebody is immediately uh, jumping to give us advice when we don't want advice, or someone is not really looking or paying attention, uh, and so we feel abandoned, we'd feel that they're not responsive, it's important to say, hey, can I share something with you? And if I do, would you be willing to put down the phone? Or would you be willing to not tell me, jump in and tell me what I should do, just listen? Or would you be willing to give me encouragement rather than focus on all the mistakes or the, the problems that might lie ahead? Or could you be compassionate instead of, you know, just being logical and cold and rational? It's important to reflect on, in the past, with our friends and loved ones, what kind of responses did we get that felt abandoning and which kind of responses did we get that felt um, rewarding? And then ask ourselves, was that person, was this rewarding because they were listening without or was it because they weren't giving me advice? Or was it because they were giving me advice? Was it because they were encouraging? Or was it because they just sat and offered an, a compassionate look? It's important to note that there are absolutely <clears throat> two things. There's no wrong needs. What you need to feel safe is what you need to feel safe. Two, there's no way any other human being will know what you need to feel safe unless you state your needs. Nobody but nobody is born knowing exactly what I need or what you need to feel truly understood. So hopefully you're with a partner or with a friend that when you connect with them or a therapist, when you connect with them, they can look at your body language and your facial expressions, your tone of voice, and they can anticipate, okay, this person really needs right now for me to just listen or they need me right now to be encouraging or to give them some kind of personal experience that will make them feel safer. We know when we need to state needs because we'll experience one of three states. We'll feel preoccupied about an interaction. We'll think a lot about it. We'll be resentful. We'll feel hurt by an interaction. Or we'll feel engulfed, we'll feel kind of smothered in a desire to get away and to not connect with that person anymore. So whenever we feel a sense of, you know, rummaging over and over and over again in our head, replaying an interaction, or a feeling of being wounded, or a feeling of unmet needs, uh, engulfed, that means we need to be clearer in our interactions with them, exactly what we want. Stating needs is, of course, very vulnerable. It can lead to anxiety. It can, you know, the more that we have attachment wounds from ch for childhood, if we have anxious attachment, it's very difficult to state needs. It can feel like, why do I have to state needs? Surely somebody should know what my needs are. And that is an absolute guarantee that we will not get our needs met. 
and that the ongoing state of either feeling <clears throat> constantly replaying in our minds interactions or feeling engulfed or wanting to cut off a relationship will continue to play out. Now, uh, sometimes in interactions with friends and family members and loved ones, uh, there are topics that a family member or a loved one can bring up that immediately shifts our autonomic nervous system from relaxed to a sense of either we're being attacked or we're suddenly we're hearing something that just feels offensive. And so what will happen is our parasympathetic nervous system just shoots up in the sympathetic. Suddenly we feel unsafe. And in those situations, it's extremely essential to learn how to set boundaries. Boundaries are, in a simple word, largely for us, not for another person. It's for us to, to know, okay, I cannot talk with my brother, my uncle, my sister, my, uh, my friend X about politics because they are immediately going to say something that uh, completely is triggering for me. I no longer feel heard. I no longer feel a connection with this person. Or it could be, I can't talk about with my father my job because they're immediately going to jump in and start telling me that I'm doing it wrong. Or it could be, I can't talk about uh, with uh, a sponsor in a 12-step program. I can't talk about my relationships because this person hasn't been in a relationship in a long time and they're going to have a negative appraisal no matter what I say. So it's very important to know what we cannot talk about. This doesn't mean that our relationships are diminished. Far from it. I, with my father, who was extremely, uh, had very little boundaries, was very uh, essentially uh, prone to jumping in and talking over and to no matter what in certain arenas I did that I felt good about, it wouldn't be good enough. And so I decided uh, <clears throat> when we repaired our relationship, I decided that I was no longer going to bring up or talk about uh, anything I was doing at my job. Because no matter what I was doing, it was never good enough. I, I was always supposed to be doing something different, according to him. Now, that didn't mean I had a diminished relationship with my father. Far from it. Because I knew which topics were unsafe, it meant that um, I didn't have to uh, constantly get into battles with him. And I could focus attention on topics where we could connect and bond. Sometimes, of course, we have to set boundaries explicitly because somebody, <clears throat> maybe somebody might... Uh, first thing, bring up some kind of uh, political views that they hear from one TV channel or another that they feel uh, obliged, or maybe there's somebody who's just constantly calling us up with extremely fear-based stories and they want to uh, essentially uh, make us scared too, or whatever it is, then a boundary should be a very clear, I'm not going to talk about that. And if somebody persists, 
then this, I'm not going to talk about that, turns into, look, if you're going to continue to talk about this, I'm going to get off the phone and I'll be there to talk again when you're willing to drop the subject. It's a very clear, look, if you do this, I will do that. It's not an ultimatum. An ultimatum is when we say, if you do this, I'm out of the relationship. I'll never talk to you again. A boundary is, I am not going to talk about this. I'm not going to stay around for this. I won't talk about this person or that, you know, viewpoint or another. And in setting boundaries, we actually save relationships. We don't diminish relationships. Because if we don't know how to set boundaries, what will happen is that we will be left with cutoff. What is cutoff? That's when we start avoiding connecting with someone or when we drop them entirely or when we just don't bother. And avoidance coping is not, or conflict avoidance is not a way to grow. It's not a growth choice in life. Boundaries are. And boundaries are a developmental milestone because none of us grew up in families where it was very safe to set boundaries. That's one thing that children grow up in power dynamics where most children can't say to their parent, well, you know, dad, right now you're being engulfing and smothering. So I think it would be great if I stayed in an Airbnb for the next week, because right now I feel completely enmeshed in this family dynamic and I need a break. Now, nobody can set boundaries in childhood. So we all grow up uh, when there's something going on with us that we don't want to talk about, we simply avoid the parent or we avoid talking about the subject. And it's far better to be able to set boundaries because that gives us a develop uh, that gives us an interpersonal tool that none of us were given growing up. So if preoccupation and engulfment tells us we're not setting stating our needs, anger is what tells us we need to set a boundary. Anger, the reason why human beings have the affect state or the feelings of anger, wanting to push or get away or to, uh, just, to just put distance between ourselves and another human being is because it's there to help us set developmental or I should say uh, interpersonal uh, appropriate actions to establish a safety in the relationship. If we repress anger, nothing will change in the relationship. And in fact, we'll wind up either deflecting the anger onto somebody else or other relationships will suffer or we'll convert it into a resentment where we'll constantly feel or think negative stories about the other, but nothing will change in the relationship. On the other hand, if we vent our anger, if we start shouting or if we start talking really loud or if we start attacking the other, then nothing will change either because we haven't addressed the events or the topics that are actually making us feel unsafe. So venting and whether passively or directly destroys relationships as does repressing anger eventually what maintains relationships is understanding what topics what kind of interactions make us feel unsafe and very calmly reminding ourselves before we talk with that person not to bring up that topic 
Or if they bring it up, be very clear. I'm not going to talk about this right now. So uh, anger, uh, we're going to do a practice a little while that will help us understand how to convert anger into a boundary that we need to set. That will be our meditation, and we'll be going into it. A little while later, I'm just going to bring up some other points um, uh, so that we cover some of the basis. Um, To maintain relationships and friendships and to maintain a strong sense of connectivity, it's very important to find a mutually satisfying, reliable time when we can connect. Now, people with anxious attachment or people who have um, any degree of early attachment wounds, if we leave it up in the air, if we talk with a friend or uh, a partner or work colleague, and we don't set a time when we know we're going to connect again, if we leave it up in the air, the unreliable schedule will actually trigger a sense of insecurity. It's important to know how to leave enough time for a conversation and to even be very explicit who will call who, who will Zoom the other person, who will set up the Zoom meeting, or who will, um, who will you know, FaceTime whom. Leaving as little as possible up in the air alleviates, one, the unpredictability, and it creates a greater sense of a secure base. If you know, okay, I'm going to get to talk to my friend or my colleague or my boss or whatever on Friday, uh, you know, at three, then you no longer have to have that story and that, that wondering rolling around your Literally, you'll find that your vagal nerve will engage and you'll feel much more comfortable. So knowing when we're going to connect, it's best as possible in my work as a pastor to set times every week or every other week where I'm going to connect with that person, not for my benefit, but for their benefit, because I know that other that people feel safer and they feel more connected when they know when they're going to get to connect with me again. Um, When I show up for others, I really try to push myself to engage in active questions. If I do active questioning, that helps us remove the distance that happens when we are connecting remotely. Active questions are, I want to not just jump into those really deep questions of disclosing what we conceal, but I'll start to ask questions like uh, the daily life, events, things like, uh, I don't know, what are you enjoying during the day? Where are you getting your food? You know, are there any podcasts you're listening to or TV shows that you're really enjoying? What times of the day are you struggling What kind of activity is still rewarding for you? People to feel seen really want to feel that they are interesting to another person. They want, as as part of that really uh, from cradle to grave, deeply ingrained attachment drive, we all yearn to be seen and to be found to be interesting. So if we want to develop intimacy in our 
interactions and a sense of deep connection, it's important to push ourselves to almost act as if we're interviewing or we're really trying to know what this person's life is like, what, what it's like to be in their day. Uh, and I, that's so much of what I do. I, you know, to get to the place where someone feels safe to express or talk or share about difficulties, one, one first needs to feel that the other person cares about us. During this last seven weeks, I've found in my um, pastoral work that it's really important to talk with people about long-term goals. Why do I do this? Like, what are you going to do when it's finally safe to travel? Or what restaurant are you going to go to when restaurants are finally open and it's, you know, it's safe to go? Or what uh, what would be your favorite activity that you are going to do that you haven't been able to do? Now, why do I do this? Well, when we bring up future plans, it reminds each other that this too shall pass. And right now, one of the difficulties of the, the pandemic is that there hasn't been really any clear consensus of how we move forward. Clearly, nobody in our federal government has a clue how to do that in a responsible way. And so when there's no sense of other people knowing how to move forward, it creates a sense that we're stuck, that this could go on and on, that there's no sense of, or we, we can lose faith that there will be a time when some of the things that we truly enjoy will be available to us. So in conversations, literally asking a person, you know, what are you going to do, you know, when it's safe to drive around or travel? Um, it's easier to get through times of disconnection if we remind each other that disconnection will eventually end. It helps us create a sense of it. Act, it upmodulates dopamine when we plan for the future. So simply asking someone what they want to do, you know, next year or what would they you know once it's warmer outside where what what activities are they look forward forward to doing um there's a whole school of psychology based around uh priming and priming is essentially placing around us objects or images that remind us of feeling safe of, you know, uh, people that we feel supported by. Uh, this is also known as what's called proximal reminders. If we're only connecting with someone that we care about, a best friend or a family member or uh, somebody, a therapist that we used to see in person, if we don't have any tangible reminders of them, it will very often throughout the week feel this greater sense of distance than when we could actually see them in person. A proximal reminder could be an image, an image of a place. It could be uh, a fabric or something that reminds you of a place you used to go that felt safe or an interaction with someone where you felt really connected. Proximal reminders prime the mind to feel more uh, connected 
And so they're very often very useful in polyvagal therapy theory and in therapies based on polyvagal. They talk about how important it is uh, for the therapist to create proximal reminders of security. So they'll have the therapist do certain kinds of lighting, certain kinds of images on the wall, very often nature images that look very open and peaceful. So those kind of priming are very useful. If there's a conflict in our life, it can be, of course, difficult to work through conflicts remotely. The most important tool is to practice what's called mirroring dialogue. What's mirroring dialogue? That's when, if we know that there's some issue that's causing tension, maybe it's with the fact that uh, there's some irritation or maybe somebody said something that, or there's been a disagreement. Uh, this can be even in person with roommates that we actually live with or with, you know, partners. Uh, mirroring dialogue is to first ask the other person to talk about what's on their mind, talk about what they've experienced, to never interrupt under no circumstances, to listen very closely, and then not defend ourselves, but just repeat back exactly what we've heard. What I heard you say is you felt I wasn't uh, giving you a caring or I was um, giving you a, you know, a judgmental look or you felt that I was talking in a way that was uh, instructive and not compassionate. You repeat back what they say. When people feel heard, conflict immediately dissipates. The reason why conflict gets ratcheted up is because people don't feel that they'll be heard unless they raise their voice or they use ultimatums or they use exaggerations in their claims. And then we take our turn and then we say what we're feeling and most important, what our needs are in the future. We focus on our needs we communicate them. We don't make truth claims. So the most important thing is to say, never say things like you never, or you don't, or you aren't, or you always. But in fact, to focus on I feel I need X or Y. Now, moving into our meditation, uh, the key Buddhist mindfulness tools that help uh, reduce reliance on defenses when we're in a conflict is one to pause and to listen and focus on how we feel in our body. That's called mindfulness to not to disengage with the outrage stories or the resentment stories and to focus attention on the physiological underpinnings because it's the somatic markers in the body that actually create the thinking, that create the story. The story always follows what we're feeling in the body. That's, if you ever want to read about it, the great neuropsychologist Antonio Damasio. But you don't have to listen or read Damasio. You could just listen to the Buddha, who said the same thing 2,500 years ago, which was that uh, feelings... Vedana, as he called it, precede 
our desires and our impulses which precede our thinking. And we know from the work of Benjamin Labette and other neurologists that that's absolutely true. The thinking or the story is always a mood congruence with how we feel in the body. So if we want to first work with whatever we're feeling and turn it into statements of boundaries or needs, we first have to get out of the story that's conflating and find the internal experience of clenching or tightness in the body or the jaw being locked or the brow being furrowed. We have to go back to the Vedana. That's where the Buddha said the escape is. Go back to the feelings in the body. Get interested in them. Start to investigate them. Give them space. Instead of constantly abandoning how we feel by listening to the story of outrage or resentment, stay with that tent, that tight belly or that heaviness in the, the chest or that, that tightness in the throat. Go back to the body and pay attention to that, uh, what sometimes we call that inner child, which is your right brain, which is programmed early in life, and after about age six, speaks to us through the body. That's the way the inner child speaks to us, through the, that, that, those tightness and those feelings. When you pay attention to the feelings, then you can begin to ask that state of being, what do, I, what do you need? What do you need to feel safe right now? So if we're in an interaction with somebody, and after we get off, uh, FaceTime or after we get off Zoom or after we get off Google Hangouts and we really feel this sense of, I didn't like that at all. Or we feel like that didn't, that person wasn't listening at all. Or we feel, I can't believe what that person said or whatever. Then what we do is we, instead of churn the story, we go into the body and we ask, okay, what do I need to feel right now? And maybe we'll feel this sense of energy moving up in our, the back of our neck and the throat, and it's this wanting to just shout. Or maybe it's this feeling of anxiety in the belly or whatever. And we just be with it. And then over time, as it starts to dissipate, we can ask or visualize, what do I need to do now? What do I need to say? to make these feelings feel a little safer. And you can ask, okay, do I need to tell this person that I can't talk about that again? Or do I need to say to this person, hey, you're not listening enough. You're just jumping in, you're interrupting, and you're telling me what to do, or whatever. You literally ask that inner child what it needs to feel safe. And when we take appropriate actions, then almost amazingly, I found that the resentments fall away, the preoccupation falls away, the feeling of loneliness begins to fall away, the feeling of vulnerability, the lack of agency, the lack of a sense of the sense of shame that many of us have, because the more we take actions on our behalf, the more we are developmentally moving in to adult interactions. We're not living in the legacy of childhood interactions. 
we're moving to adult coping strategies and away from uh, maladaptive coping strategies like avoidance or resentment or so forth. So <clears throat> I better stop there because uh, there's always a time where I begin to feel my throat going and I still have to lead the meditation. So I hope that was in some way interesting. If not, I'll try to do better the next time. Um, if you'd like to support a Buddhist pastor in New York City, uh, don't bother if you're, you lost work or your income stream has completely disappeared. But if you would like, if you are okay and you would like to support my work, it's the, the Venmo is Dharma Punks, D-H-A-R-M-A-P-U-N-X-N-Y-C. Or the PayPal is the same. Uh, you can go to the dharmapunksnyc.com and there's a PayPal button and you can do that. So thanks for listening and thanks for any contributions you can make. But let's now go to the meditation and let's just put in practice both self-soothing and then we're also going to reflect on some relationship where we need to uh, either state our needs or set boundaries so that we can improve the uh, interaction. So oh, I'm going to relax now. I'm going to close my eyes. And it's so relaxing to close one's eyes because uh, if we spend a lot of the day on Zoom or on a screen, we develop what's called focus fatigue. We're not meant to actually keep our eyes pinned to one area. Uh, throughout evolution, that would have made us very vulnerable if we kept staring at one area. Or... So to do that, it uses up all the acetylcholine in the cingulate. And so there's nothing more relaxing than to uh, not have to look at a screen, to close our eyes, to just encourage the eyes to relax and settle and then bringing our attention to the muscles connecting the neck to the shoulders and imagine you could give them this area a little massage somebody's gently uh, if you want to you can even do that with your hand just massage into that very often that area is very tight and then Taking a nice soothing in-breath and with a very long out-breath, dropping your shoulders so that the arms hang lifelessly. And when we pull the shoulders slightly back, rotating the shoulders back, what happens is the chest opens and that not only leaves a lot of room for the in-breath, but also engages the vagal nerve. So we want to do that. And we want to try to develop what's called abdominal or belly breathing, far more soothing than chest breathing. So abdominal breathing is imagine, as you breathe in, allow the muscles in the abdomen to release and your belly expands bloats out like a balloon and then as you breathe out 
See if you can imagine both any tightness in the chest releasing and all the way down to the belly, which no longer is bloated, it's just relaxed. So the in-breath is enlivening and it fills up. The out-breath is very long, it releases. It relaxes, it soothes. The breath in abdominal breathing, we feel it coming into the belly and being released from the belly. So you can feel the breath, in-breath, expanding the belly and then up through the body like a, like a ray of warm energy expanding up towards the head. But then as we start to breathe out, imagine just releasing all the muscles like a warm bath, a warm shower, everything in the head and the neck and then the chest and then finally the belly relax. The longer the exhalations, the more soothing. Getting really just comfortable. And then we're going to try to adapt the that state of being when we've arrived at a place we've yearned to visit. While right now none of us can travel generally, or it's very difficult to travel, but we can travel in our minds and you could bring yourself to a place in your mind where you feel really safe, maybe a place on the beach where it's warm and you have a lot of room. Maybe it's a hammock in the countryside or maybe it's a spot by a river. And when you get to this place in your mind, you can really relax. There's nowhere you'd rather be. There's no place you else you want to get to. There's nothing missing right now in your life. Everything you need right now to really land in your life, to connect, to explore, to self-soothe, to take care of yourself, to honor the body which keeps you alive, to really rest in the moment. Everything you need to do, all that is right here and right now. There's nothing missing. There's nothing you need to get anymore. And all you're going to do is just rest in the moment. Just let your body... release. There's nowhere to go now, nothing to do. There's nothing you need to take care of. There's nothing that's missing. There's nothing, there's no one you have to pay attention to.
This is one of those moments in life where we can really come to a complete stop and just land in this moment. Those are the times we really remember, we really grow from. So let's just now each connect with this moment. And if you find when you get settled, when you let go of external awareness by closing your eyes and getting comfortable, if you notice that then your mind wants to rehash or plan or work on something or fantasize, well, that's understandable. That's what we've trained it and what in many ways is a natural outcome. But we want to train the mind to be able to come to a stop and just relax and not abandon the present, not abandon this moment and not abandon our true appreciation of what it is to be alive by getting lost in thought. If that happens, you just shrug. It's okay. Nothing wrong. We just keep bringing our awareness back again and again. It's a good thing sometimes the mind wanders because it gives us the opportunity to learn what kind of thoughts don't want us to be happy or relaxed. What kind of thoughts always we give too much attention to, to the point they can't give us a little pace, a little peace, a little, a little room. And then we just come back and reward ourselves with a nice breath.
trying not to attain anything, just if you find yourself straining, just let go of whatever you're trying to achieve, just relax, just listen to the sounds around you, just try to get as comfortable as you can. You can even repeat, I love you, keep going in your mind.
What I'd like you to, or invite you to do now is while you're hopefully feeling a little relaxed, we're going to actually consciously bring to mind a recent interaction with somebody that we need to talk with or want to talk with on a regular basis. But there's something about these interactions that are uh, unsatisfying. There's something that happens where we don't feel either heard or appreciated or understood or we feel that there's some topic that this other person brings up that doesn't make us comfortable. Really, just bring to mind any unsatisfying interaction that happens in connections that uh, are ongoing. And see if you can really visualize being there and having this experience being repeated and see just what it's like to feel in this situation. And then what we do is, if you can create or just remind yourself of some exchange, if you can't visualize it, just remind yourself of some time recently where you felt really disappointed in some interaction and then feel into your body, which means put aside the story of what happens or the outrage or the disappointment or replaying the events and just see what feels slightly tight or hollow what, where do you feel some even very slight shift from what you normally feel? What calls, what brings your attention? If nothing, if you can't find the underpinning, then just bring to mind an exchange or an interaction that was even more triggering. Just trying to really bring to mind something that was just disappointing, unrewarding, off-putting. See if you can find the feeling beneath it. And wherever you find it, maybe it's just a tightness in your forehead, or maybe it's a clenched jaw, or maybe it's this sudden feeling of of t tightness in your chest, or maybe it's just emptiness or hollowness, but just give your attention to it. And knowing that this is the way one hemisphere of your brain is talking to you. It's predicting, anticipating that it's not going to get its needs met. It's feeling abandoned or rejected or 
unloved or uncared about, and it's speaking to you through your body. And we want to listen to it. We don't want to ignore it by getting lost in our thoughts. We want to listen to the way these, this inner child speaks to us. And you're the parent listening to this child speaking to you through your own body, saying it's unhappy. Just give the feeling space. And then just breathing around, just allowing the feelings to be there. And finally, ask yourself as a parent to this inner child, how do you, what can you do to make this child feel safe? What do you need to say to this other person calmly. That would change these interactions to make them more rewarding. And you'll know you've stumbled upon the right boundary or or need you need to set because as you think of it, even though it might be scary to say it, you also note that the part of you that holds the the disappointment will start to soften. What do you need to say? calmly, clearly. So that these ancient wounds and abandonments and loss and disappointments will not be reactivated in us. So if nothing came about, that's still a practice that's worth, especially during the times where we feel uh, unseen or unheard or uh, frustrated, to do this practice, to get clear as to what needs or boundaries we need to set. What do we need to say we need? What do we need to protect ourselves from? So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bell. And 
you're encouraged to take your time as long as you need to just slowly open your eyes. And when you start to see the sights around you, try to set an intention to bring awareness of your body with you. Mindfulness is not something that we primarily do on the cushion or in a meditation. Mindfulness is what we do all the time. It's every time we return and check in with how we feel. That's how we are practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness.